ultimately, what do we all want? We all want to wake up in the morning and feel some control of our lives because so much of it is out of our control. We can't control whether we're going to end up with someone we're happy with. We can't control if you're an actor, the job you're going to get next or if the interest rates are going to rise or so if you're in a creative job, you want to feel like some part of you is driving this car and not just being dragged along. And writing is a way you can do that. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Hello, you're listening to the National Theatre Podcast. I'm Sam Sedgman, and that was the actor Kush Jumbo, talking to me about how writing scripts gives her a sense of control over her career. Because today we are talking about new plays. How do they get written? And it's not as simple as you might think. When we think about writers, we often imagine lone geniuses working by themselves. They're in some drafty garret, there's ink on their fingers and fire in their eyes, and after months or years locked away, they throw wide the window shutters to tell everyone they've written a masterpiece. Now, no surprises, that is not really how it happens. All good writers need good editors, and playwrights are no exception. Theatre is a team sport and new plays need a great many creative talents to come together to bring them to life. So, today we're taking a trip to the Real Playwrights Workshop. We're shining a light on the machinery that connects a writer's first draft with a polished and performed final script. We'll speak to writers, dramaturgs and directors to find out how does new work come to life. Fun fact for you before we start, you're going to be hearing the word dramaturg thrown around an awful lot in this episode. If you're wondering what that is, it's basically someone who takes a more analytical role in a play's development as it works its way to the stage. If plays are an artist's children, dramaturgs are sort of the midwives. Anyway, on with the show. In 2013, Kush Jumbo wrote a one-woman show for herself called Josephine and I. It was an all-singing, all-dancing, cabaret-style play about the real life of legendary performer and political activist Josephine Baker. The show was a great success, winning Kush an Evening Standard Theatre Award. And today, she's performed a variety of acclaimed stage roles and she's appeared in big TV dramas like The Good Wife. When we sat down in the studio here at The National, she's performing in a show called Common here at the moment, I asked her where she was in her life and her career when she decided to write a one-woman show. I suppose at the time that I wrote Josephine and I, I didn't think of myself as a writer. Although, looking back on it, I've kind of always written. I've always been a poet. I've always written 10-minute musicals, five-minute plays. I just thought everybody did that, you know, on the side. But at this particular moment in my life, I was... I'd been out of drama school for a few years. I'd been working pretty successfully um, with the agent that I had. But as is the case with a lot of actors that come out, those first five years kind of is where you play your cast type for a while and then you begin to be put up for stuff that maybe the stuff you really want to be doing and that kind of wasn't happening for me. And I couldn't quite see how, as an actor, you were supposed to sustain a life when every penny you made went into just surviving even if you worked two more jobs on the side and that struggle can become kind of depressing and take all the joy out of the acting that you do do everybody deals with their mental health as an actor in different ways but it's something we don't talk about very much and I was at probably the lowest point in my life um, with some other circumstances that were going on so I had actually decided to quit acting 
and I applied to do a PGCE at Greenwich to start in the September um, and I kind of came clean to my parents about this who'd been always been really supportive of me being an actor and they were horrified <laughs> unlike most parents who would jump for joy they were absolutely <laughs> horrified because this is what I'd been doing since I was three years old and they were like this is just a bad patch you know you've got to keep going I said I can't keep going anymore I'm miserable when I wake up I'm miserable when I go to sleep I can't see a world where I'm ever going to make enough money to be able to pay everything and be happy or anybody's going to offer me a, a job that pays a substantial amount of money where I'm actually enjoying the work that I do I'm not an actor who can just shut up and do it mm. unfortunately and my mum said to me you really ought not to go out like this um, I remember her saying and she was like you you've always talked about you know writing a show and you always said you were going to write a show about Josephine because I've been obsessed with Josephine since I was a kid and collected all this stuff on her and and she was like, why don't you write something and just like do it over the summer and at least do something before you end so that the last thing that you do before you end isn't kind of this gap of nothing or this feeling that you haven't succeeded. So I was like, oh, fine. So I went <laughs> and I was living in their attic and I started writing it. I remember the day I sat down and got out all, these, all her books that I had and and that's how it began. And then, you know, I did it in a pub theatre for 15 people at the Camden Fringe and that was it really. I, d I, didn't, I didn't go and do the PGCE. Cush describes that performance as kind of a turning point in her career. After the Camden Fringe, it transferred to the Bush Theatre and later on it went to New York. But how did it get to that point? Today we're focusing on basically that question. How does a play start as an idea in an attic and end up in front of an audience? Scripts need development. It's incredibly rare that they come into the world fully formed. And at The National, we have a whole department dedicated to that process. Um, my name's Emily McLaughlin and I'm the head of new work here at the National Theatre. And I'm based down at the National Theatre studio most of the time, which is um, a large building with workshop spaces and writers rooms, um, which we programme all year round. When I imagine the new work department of the National Theatre, I kind of imagine a writer's paradise full of large oak and leather topped desks, maybe a rec room with Tom Stoppard and Carol Churchill playing ping pong. Yeah. What's the reality like day to day? Well, I think that's a brilliant imagining of it. I think that somewhere like the National Theatre has a responsibility to kind of offset or subvert or disrupt expectations of the writer because there's a great weight of expectation when you come and write for somewhere like the National in terms of the artistic excellence that we are pursuing and that we require. So when you're in conversation with a writer um, and on a specific commission, you try and have um, as detailed a conversation as you can, as also as the writer needs to have, because writers are all different. And I think we are in a danger in this world of kind of needing people to be very good at pitching in order to invest. Some writers pitch very articulately and you know exactly what you're embarking on on what the journey is and some writers don't some writers are very organic and really cannot express articulately exactly what it is they want to do because if they could they wouldn't need to write it what's wonderful about being in a subsidized organization is that you have to use the responsibility of that subsidy to offset risk and to allow artists to be truly themselves and if that means not pitching that's fine anyway then you can you have two choices you can either say off you go and I'll see you in a year and bring me your first draft. 
Or, and I think at the National, and also working closely with Ben Power, what I've seen him do. Ben Power, by the way, is the Deputy Artistic Director here at the National. He works quite a bit with new writers, and you'll be hearing from him a little bit later on in the show what I've seen him do um, in terms of particularly developing the plays which are not for the Dorfman which are for the larger spaces is to sort of say well don't feel that you need to come back in a year because that's not going to help you what you need to do is just stay in close dialogue with me all the way through if you write 10 pages and it's a total mess I still want to read that and I want to talk to you about it so that you are in a much closer dialogue with that writer and ultimately sort of free them from this moment of having to deliver the first draft on which everything then rests. The National Theatre isn't alone in developing new plays. Lots of theatres have studios or literary departments that do similar things. They're usually not at the same scale. Stuart Pringle is the associate dramaturg at the Bush Theatre in Shepherd's Bush, a venue renowned for its new writing. Before that, Stuart was artistic director at the Old Red Lion, a London fringe venue, as well as being a playwright himself. I asked Stuart, With so many theatres producing work in different ways, do writers ever find that process confusing? Yeah, so I think one of the biggest problems in UK new writing is a lack of transparency. And, you know, I think everyone who works in literary departments has a role to play in improving that. Um, Everyone who works in theatres has a role to play in improving that. But I feel like writers a lot of the time are writing plays, sending them off and just hoping that they're going to get a knock on the door going, it's on at the Royal Court in November. Um, (laughs) And like that does happen, you know, that really does happen, but very, very rarely. And what's much more likely is that a theatre will be interested in a writer and in in taking a journey with that writer and in finding a project, whether it's this one or another one, which is suitable for their stages, which can find their way there. And I think... um, I think one of the things which we're trying to do is just make that journey much clearer to writers when when we start engaging with them and going, look, we like this play that we read of yours. Um, We're unlikely to just put that on. Um, We're much more likely, if we're interested in you, to see whether we can develop that play with you or whether we can find something new to work on. because although like plays are the public-facing bit, it's the writers who really matter. Um, and I don't expect I don't expect a masterpiece to fall through our letterbox uh, once uh, every two months, so that we can just program six of them next year. Like that is just not how it works. You'd be out of a job anyway. I'd be out of a job. It would be absolutely <laughs> dreadful. It's just really good for writers to know the practical side of that, and the fact that at somewhere like the Bush, we're going to be putting six shows on our main stage every year, and we're going to be looking at well over a thousand. Um, and most of those six shows are going to be shows which we've been working on for some time. Um, so writers really should come prepared to go on a journey. So when you were sitting down to start writing in your yeah. parents' attic, did you... You said you'd written sort of short ten-minute things before. Had you ever written a full-length play before? No, I hadn't written a full-length anything before. Did that give you concern that you might not be able to write a full-length This is going thing? to sound so messy and messed <laughs> up, but it didn't. Okay. I... I think a lot of the time people are often saying to me, you know, how do I sit down and write? How do I begin the process of writing? And I think it's, I think we can convince ourselves that there is a way to do this. There's a structure to follow. You start at the beginning, you start at the end, you perhaps look at what's popular or what people are wanting to see. And these are all the wrong ways, I think, to begin. You're, the most important thing for me was that I had a really strong idea and maybe because I've for so long been an actor and I've so long seen it from this perspective of looking at the audience, I see things in emotional moments that I want to have at some point in the piece. I don't know how I'm going to get there. I don't know 
sometimes even how it's going to end or how it's going to begin but I'll go oh at one point in this show I want this person to really tell that person what they think of them or at some point in this show you know I want to have a realization about this and I kind of write that down and stick that up on the wall I end up actually writing scenes that have no connection to each other and it's like I can only describe it as like you know when you're doing a jigsaw puzzle and you separate all the straight edges and the wibbly wobblies what my mum calls them <laughs> um it's like instead of building the frame first I feel like it's like putting the wibbly wobbly bits in first you're like one there 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 and it starts to build and the last thing I put around it is the frame because I'm, I don't come from a, that structural background. You know, I didn't, I haven't graduated from a writing course. So a lot of the time structure for me is what comes last. Um, but obviously I didn't know that this was my process when I sat down to write, to no. write Josephine and I. It just, and I guess I, I've it, learned it as I've gone along. And if you thought that there was this really complicated system that you had to follow, you might not have started Oh my it. God, never. And if I'd known what was, what was going to come over the next year and a half, because I wrote 21 drafts of Josephine and I, the playtext that's printed, I think is the 19th draft, and there were two more after that. And if I'd known what that process was like of not only being a new writer where every single day in your, when you're in rehearsals, you have to rewrite. Before you even get into rehearsals, you redrafted a million times. Then when you get into rehearsals, you're redrafting every day. When you're in that show, you're the actor that has to go home and relearn the redrafts. And I was rewriting at nighttime, learning till two in the morning, coming back, rehearsing it, rewriting at nighttime. That process nearly killed me. And a couple of points in it, I thought, what am I doing? I don't know. I don't know how to do this. People are going to think, who does she think she is? But it was, but I think being, going through that process in a year with Philida Lloyd, who directed it, because she's such an amazing dramaturg. Well, now I look back on it, it was almost like a crash course in playwriting because she was talking to me about structure and I was redrafting the content and just mm. narrowing it down and what, what she calls just cutting off the fat and cutting off the fat and cutting off the fat until until you only really speak when you need to speak. Cush's partnership with Phyllida Lloyd is quite normal. Writers rarely go it alone. To put a play in a theatre, you need a creative team, a director, a designer, the people who are going to turn that script into a performance. Those people often have just as much of an impact on how a show turns out as the writer does. So finding the right fit is a huge responsibility. Often, Emily's responsibility. You talk about introducing a script to a director. Yes. Presumably there's an element of matchmaking going on where yes, you, yeah. you have a script and you have to find a creative team for it. That's right. How yeah. are your matchmaking skills? How does that happen? Oh, well, that's the most fun part of the job. It really is because you feel like you're really making something happen in a particular way that is you have, in, you know, you have influenced that moment. So you have at your fingertips as all of us as a team, a kind of long list of directors that really excite us that we've seen making work in other venues, in other ways, um, for you know a period of time. And then you have to either bring somebody in who you know is a kind of safe pair of hands in a way, not to do them a disservice, but mm -hmm. you feel like will really, um, they've made lots of work here and you can absolutely see how it's gonna be a kind of Rolls Royce, it's gonna be amazing. And, or you do the exciting part of the job often which is to kind of bring somebody new in and go this this play requires um, a younger more emerging director and you it's great when you see the director especially in the workshops bringing adding so much value and really 
bringing all those skills. And then you think, yes, that was the right choice. So once you have a creative team on board, they can start getting a play into shape. And the first step is usually having a reading, putting the script in a room with a director and a group of actors to see how the play looks on its feet. We hold a lot of readings. We had about 45 or 50 readings in the studio over last year, and I'm sure it will be a similar figure, whether they, they can range from anything from a day to five days. And that's when the director really gets hold of the play and a group of actors, and they just give it a really good workshop going over, kind of testing ideas out and exploring exactly what it is on its feet. Can you give me an example of the kind of like realisation or change that might occur when you when you put a play on its feet and breathe life into it with people? So when um, we did The Suicide with Sahela El-Bushra and Nadia Fall um, in 2016, that went through quite an extensive workshop process. The Suicide, I should explain, was a show performed here last year. It was a new script by Sahela El-Bushra, adapted from a farce by Nikolai Erdman, transferring the action from a Soviet state to modern Britain. And in the course of that, in terms of reading it, they made a lot of decisions about how the narrative worked in respect of the location. And they realised that they initially, Sahela had thought, because it was a farce, it needed to be very contained, like the original Erdman play in um, the rooms in Sam's room, and or Semyon's room. And then they realised that for the modern version that was set on this estate in this contemporary world, they, that wasn't going to work and they needed to really explode it out of the room and into the whole estate and that scenes would take place in a much wider kind of geography than they'd originally conceived. Mm. So that was one of the um, realisations that they or discoveries that they made in the workshop for that. Developing a play through workshops and new drafts can take a long time, especially for large and complex projects, which can take a lot of work before they reach their final form. One of the things which has been through a big workshop process is something I'm really passionate about, which is was in development before I started, which is a book, um, a non-fiction book by a writer called Stephen Johnson, which kind of popular science, social anthropology. And it's about Jon Snow, and he was the man that um, discovered the true cause of cholera and kind of overcame all the obstacles in terms of the prevailing beliefs at the time and really fought a battle to show everybody that cholera was in the water, that's why it was killing everybody. And what's brilliant about the new work department is that that underlying idea is being developed as a musical at the moment. So um, we have Bijan Shebani, um, book writer Ryan Craig, composer Mark Teitler, and we've just brought on a lyricist called Glyn Maxwell. And as a team, they are they've had they've had about two or three years of workshops, kind of about one workshop a year over three years, and they have constantly pushed and evolved and tested the ideas of what is quite a complex project, but will ultimately be something extraordinary. Theatres are always on the hunt for new ideas and new voices. And so nurturing young playwrights getting to grips with their craft is really important. And sometimes those young voices are really very young indeed. I'm, I'm BT. Um, I'm a year 12 student. I go to school in London and I wrote a play for New Views uh, and it's going to be on today. So I'm really excited. That's amazing. What's the play called? It's called Dead Don't Floss. And what's it about? Um, well, as you can tell from the title, it's clearly... <laughs> um, it's about... A, a young girl, a teenage girl, dealing with really difficult things with grief, um, but through kind of practicing her stand-up comedy, 
um and it kind of just touches on the the kind of fine line between comedy and tragedy and that kind of thing bt wrote her play as part of new views a playwriting competition run by the national theater we send playwrights into schools to help students learn how to write a play the best scripts get a reading here in the Dorfman Theatre, with the winner, which this year was Beatty's play, receiving a full production. I'd been to the Dorfman recently to watch a show that I loved, Our Ladies of Perpetual Sucker. So I loved that. I'm going to say it again because it was so great. And then I'm like, oh, that my, my play is going to be on in there. That's amazing. And actually, the best part of working with the National was working with like the people. Watching the director, Roy, work has been like almost like incomprehensible because he just does things and you're like I would like he'll say something to the actors who are also just so incredible and I just think how did you even think of that how did you even conceive that so it's amazing working with such a such an establishment as the national and but the highlight is the people I think really definitely how did your writing change throughout the process it it changed a lot like my first draft I I'm I'm one of, I'm I'm a kind of person who likes everyone to be happy and kind of like everything to be resolved. So every scene had its own own little resolution at the end. So it was like they'd have an argument and then they'd hug and it'd be fine. And then the next scene they'd have an argument. <laughs> and like talking to the playwright and talking to other people who I got to read it, they were like, you know, everything doesn't have to be okay all the time because it's not. And I was like, oh yeah. So that was one thing that changed massively is that now in the play there are kind of uncomfortable moments and they don't get resolved. And that's like way more powerful because... I think what it was is I had no faith in my audience and I just thought I'll tell them everything they need to think and feel. But really it's about giving them like vaguer images so that they can fill in the other side of the story, which I think involves the audience a lot more, makes them feel a lot more part of the story. Has it changed you, the process of writing this play? I think I think every every experience changes you. I think it definitely has. Now I want to be a playwright. <laughs> Maybe I don't know. It's. I was gonna say, what are you gonna write next? Um, I'm I'm gonna write a poem about this podcast. That's what I'll write next. That's not at all made me feel a bit weird. <laughs> no, I'm not gonna do that. I, that is a good question, and I have been. Th- people keep going. So what's next? And I'm like, I don't know. I can barely remember writing one play. I don't know if I can manage doing another one, but I definitely want to. Like, I've got the bug now. I really want to write more. I mean, my my first idea was to write about a Donald Trump impersonator living in Mexico. So there are bad ideas. That is proof that (laughs) there are bad ideas out there. So maybe I'll write, maybe next time I'll write something that is just awful and no one will ever read it. But that's fine, at least I'm writing. It's hard to think about writing a play without considering the kind of stage it's going to be performed on. At The National, we have three stages, which are all very different, and which each suit different kinds of work. Our largest theatre is the Olivier Theatre, which is modelled on the famous Greek amphitheatre at Epidaurus. If you imagine an amphitheatre, that's basically what it looks like. It's got a huge, round stage with an audience of 1,200 people wrapped around it in big banks. It's a place where you expect to see epic, grand productions, plays with large casts, plays where characters grapple with ideas that are much bigger than themselves. Our second stage is the Littleton, which is a more conventional proscenium arch theatre. That's the very traditional kind of setup where it feels like the audience are looking through a big window at the action taking place on the other side. So plays that work here tend to be self-contained, naturalistic, 
They're the kind where you're looking at people in rooms talking to each other. Our smallest space, the Dorfman, is our most versatile. It seats 300 to 400 people, and it can be configured into lots of different layouts. This means it's a great place to experiment, so it's an appealing venue to put new writing in. Finding new plays to put in each of these three theatres is one of our big challenges here. So I spoke to Ben Power, the Deputy Artistic Director of the National, who Emily mentioned earlier, to ask him how exactly we do it. The Dorfman, uh, there are an awful lot of plays that we could put on in the Dorfman. It can do anything, right? It can do, it can do anything, and the vast majority of the new plays we commission, the projects that we work on in the new work department, their natural home feels like the Dorfman. So the Dorfman, we could program it right now for the next four or five years. It's hugely oversubscribed. The Littleton, the Olivier, is slightly different. You've got to think a bit more strategically about what you're putting in there. In the Olivier, there are less plays that exist for that theatre. Mm. So often you're commissioning and developing very specifically with that theatre in mind. People don't train to make work in the Olivier. Mm. There's no way you could. The only way of doing it is by doing it. And we all learn. And, you know, that's why there have been far more productions of Shakespeare or Johnson uh, in that theatre or Racine in that theatre than there have been new plays in that theatre since this building opened. And so the challenge for us, if we want to present a variety of plays in the Olivier, if we want to get those voices onto that larger stage, is how do you take those ideas and those writers and size them up for that space? The potential of that space is like greater than any theatre I know. Mm. So it's a prize worth fighting for. Yeah. It's just challenging. How do you... You talked about working with writers to develop them, to get them to ready to write mm. for that space. How do you do that? How do you find a writer that you think is promising and go, you know what, we're going to... I'm imagining a sort of rocky training montage. Yeah, yeah, that's it. They're, you know, out there lifting the tiger, logs in yeah. the snow and, yeah. like, right, writing really quickly on their desk yeah. and you're there going, faster, faster, bigger. <laughs> How do you take a writer? It's almost exactly like that. <laughs> so it's almost exactly like that. No, it's, it's, rarely, it's rarely like that. I guess the first thing is you want to try and identify the people who have the um, uh, sort of tendency towards the kind of theatre that might work on the on the larger scale. So you look for scale in terms of ideas. You look for a sort of linguistic muscle. There's a certain kind of language. Pure sort of stripped back naturalism doesn't really work in, in the Olivier particularly. You need a different kind of... Uh, writing muscle, a certain rhetorical muscle, maybe, or a small p political beat under the under the writing, perhaps. Um, and you look for somebody who wants to write mm. about big issues, about the kind of issues that twelve hundred people collectively could lean into, uh, rather than something fascinating but a bit more niche, maybe. So you look for you look for that, um, and then. And then they've got to want it. You know, they've got, you can't you can't like force a writer into it. They have to have the desire to tell uh, these these bigger, m more expansive, more epic with a small e, perhaps uh, stories. There are very practical things like the length of time it takes to get from the wings to a spot on stage where you want to speak is the length of time it takes. So you can't write, you know, a scene can't just begin in the Olivier. You have to sort of work into a scene. You can imagine those bits in the Shakespeare play where two attendants come on and there's sort of half a page of almost 
you know it's not important it's just writing it's like white noise it they've got to get from the entrance to the middle of the globe where everyone can see and hear them and i think there's sort of similar thing in the olivier you have to work out how you're going to do your entrances i remember richard bean saying it was really difficult to make a fast work in the olivier because it takes you so long to run to the door right exactly it's all the slamming doors and stuff it just doesn't work exactly a lot of the the kind of reference points we have for epic theater or Mm. theater that works on a grand scale Mm. like the olivier a lot of those plays have historically been written by men. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering how much you think about the idea that the characteristics and qualities of theatre that we think can fit in that space mm-hmm. are just things we associate with a certain kind of writer. Yeah. And to what degree you're working to challenge the idea of what that kind of play can be. Yes, I think, gosh, great question. Okay, we'll have to have a whole new podcast just on this question. <laughs> um, I think that's a, I think that's right. I think you know when we talk about a certain canon of Western dramatic literature, there's a whole set of things ascribed in what we think of as great dramatic literature, which moves us immediately into a certain kind of writer or a certain way of writing. the The things which I'm talking about as a kind of virtue of an epic epic drama, like muscle and story and uh social uh engagement um those things are not restricted to male writers writers who don't conform to what we think of as the epic playwriter um i think is is increasing all the time and is sort of rendering as a as a myth the idea that there's only one kind of voice that can work at scale Mm. um and you know anyone who saw uh Lorraine Hansberry's Le Blanc last year knows that uh it's possible to have a voice coming in from a very different tradition that totally owns the Olivier space how many projects are active at the new works department right now now that is a good question because we have got quite a lot, a lot in development. In terms of commissions, we have roughly about 65 to 70 writers actually under commission. And then in addition to that, we have another roughly 80 projects which have in some way, shape or form started a practical process in the studio. How, of those 60 commissions and 80 active projects, yes. how many of those won't see the light of day? We do turn down work, we do commission and then pass pass on things in the end. I mean, one of the things that we're trying to really build here is the philosophy, in a way, of a smaller organisation. So that it's not that there's ever been any, ever any sense that we've been careless with our commissions, but that because there are so many, we as a team need to hold on to all of them as though, you know, they're really precious mm. and we have to get bring them to fruition. But nevertheless, the, the job of of creating something which we feel has national theatre scale and reach and can amplify in that way is difficult. And so therefore, I'd say roughly about two out of five, maybe two out. If you commissioned five writers, you'd probably put three of them on and probably have to move two of them on. But what's also really good is that much of that work goes on to get produced elsewhere. So you have brought something into the world. That writer has been on your payroll. They've made something that's most of the time really great it's just not quite right for us. So then it goes on the majority of the time in another venue where probably the ideas and the form of it meet the scale. 
This makes sense, right? You're never quite sure how a play is going to turn out, and we can't program everything. But even when a show does make it through an extensive R&D process and ends up as a finished production, there's still an element of the unknown. Given that things are so long in development and you have so many people kind of working on it, mm -hmm. I'm really curious about how something can go through all of that process and still you're not quite sure how it's going to be received. But yeah, I mean, if it was, if it was possible to know then it would both it would always it would always work and and also it would sort of be the art form would be empty you know there's something there's the fact that the fact that we don't know what that we can't write down the ingredients for a great play or a great piece of art is what makes is what i think maybe one of the reasons why we go to the theater or the art gallery or the listen to music it's because Number one, it's completely subjective. My experience of it is going to be different from yours, but also, um, it's human, and and the the you can replicate. If we were to sit here and go, these are the things that make Midsummer Night's Dream uh, popular and successful, creatively, artistically successful, and then try to make another piece that had those qualities, it would be potentially ludicrous. It would not, it would not work. So every time you're sort of starting from scratch. I wanted to put this same question to Stuart Pringle, because as well as being a dramaturg at the Bush, he's also worked as a theatre critic. I wanted to know how his time developing plays in a literary department informs how he views plays when he's reviewing them from the other side of the curtain. I think as a critic, you're always aware that a huge amount of work has gone into any production, even something that's absolute dreck has definitely had blood, sweat and tears poured into it. Um, and your job isn't to tell those people that they... Uh, that they've uh, that they're sort of worthless, or that their work is worthless. But for take for instance something like a really bad uh, West End musical, which those are a couple circulating at the moment, which you feel are just entirely driven by profit, which are written lazily, cynically, pointlessly, um, with a lack of care and a lack of love for their subject matter. And I won't name any names, but like there are some going around like that. I have nothing. I have nothing but respect for the spot operator who's been working on that, or the costume designer who's been slaving away on that, or the set designer. And so, when you slam a show like that, you're really not slamming their work, but you're slamming the waste of their work and the waste of their time and the waste of their expertise and their talent into something which you think is is sort of morally, politically, or artistically bankrupt. And I'll never feel ashamed of saying of calling out that kind of work for having those qualities. It always behoves a critic to keep in mind their audience and the people who are going to be buying tickets and the people who trust their judgment. But also, I think critics do need to, to a certain extent, uh, speak to where they hope the artistic risks will be taken next. Particularly working venue side, you do you are aware of that, 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 that when you put together a programme for a year's work, there will be work which you think is a solid bet, critically, commercially, uh, artistically, and there'll be work which you know is a risk. The, the goal of any of running any kind of artistic establishment is to, you know, while not being foolish, be as brave as you possibly can be. Um, because if you're not being brave, then how the hell do you expect your writers to be brave? The things that make it work are alchemical. They're magical. And you don't know until you're in front of an audience what they are. Every performance is different and every show is different. And the liveness of it makes it unstable in a way and inherently risky. And I've worked on enough new plays now that have felt like they really weren't working only in front of an audience to turn out to be uh, 
completely transcendent and enough that have gone in the other direction as well to know that you it is in, almost entirely unpredictable and there are lots of things that you can say all the generalizations i've been making in this conversation about the olivier and about what certain kind of successful writing is in there but actually there could be a play that came in and broke all those rules and was the biggest success artistically commercially that that theater had ever known that's why that's why we're here i think is because it's a, it's because that unknown is addictive that uncertainty is addictive the risk of it is um what is so energizing Theatre is an art form that exists in the moment, and it's vital that we keep developing plays for our time because our world is changing all the time. But could the way we create new work be changing too? I put this to Stuart from The Bush. We're talking about writers a lot as though they are this particular breed of creative person. Yeah. But I mean, you're a very good example of a writer who is also lots of other things, right? And I feel that now, maybe now more than before, a lot of new work is not created by people who call themselves writers they call themselves theater makers yeah definitely. is that something you're seeing more of yeah definitely i mean we've got we've got uh in september at the bush we've got sophie Wu's uh first play for the bush which um is called ramona tells jim and sophie although she's written one piece before she's really like known as an actor and has worked very successfully as an actor for years our new emerging writers group has robin addison in who's been an actor for many years and has never really written a play play before and these are people who uh, are going out there and writing really exciting new work. Uh, but that's what they do on the weekends. And in the week, they work in theatre in some other capacity. There was a time when being anything slash anything was a massive negative. Mm. You know, like an actor slash model, an actor slash, you know, musician, whatever, whatever. When I went to work in America, I remember having a meeting with a casting director who was like, not cast as a producer somewhere and I came in to talk about like acting and talk about Josephine and I and she was like you know you're so exciting we're so excited to have you you know this is such an amazing time for multi-hyphenators and <laughs> I was like what and she's like this is just such an amazing time for multi-hyphenators with content and I was like, I'm sorry, do you mean a hyphen? Do you mean like a stick that goes <laughs> sideways? And she said, yeah. And I was talking about slashes. And she was like, well, I mean, you know, nobody uses that anymore because it's so negative. So just by virtue of changing a line from a slash to a, to a you know, just by, just by moving it to a horizontal, it had become a positive. I still know lots of writers who consider themselves writers primarily and want to write that play in their rooms and then it to go on a journey in a theatre and who don't have any interest in directing or acting. And I think that's always going to be that's always going to be part of what it is. I think the great thing now is that that isn't the only answer um, and that isn't the only way to be a creator in theatre. Um, and I think like theatre can contain that multiplicity really comfortably. I'm always going to be an actor from as long as I can remember. It's all I've ever wanted to be because I love to tell stories. I love to pretend to be other people. I love to get paid to dress up and be other people. But I think of myself more now as a maker of things. I'm sure I write now because I enjoy it and because people keep offering me opportunities to 
to, to keep doing it and I enjoy the little holiday it gives me from acting in my brain mm. because unfortunately I'm not able to stop and do one or the other I'm always doing both at the same time what I love about theatre is that it's a conversation and as I say a conversation that's only completed when the audience come in so I think the biggest myth is that it happens in isolation and the thing that we certainly at the national have an obligation to do is to make the experience of making as rich and supported as possible. So that's what we do. That's the end of our show today. Thank you all so much for listening. If you enjoyed yourself, please tell a friend, spread the word. And if you're feeling generous, I encourage you to stretch your own new writing muscles and give us a review on your podcast app. A merry band of multi-hyphenators with content came together to make this episode. It was produced by Emma Reedy, and it was edited, presented, and co-produced by me, Sam Sedgman. Our executive producer was Kate Moore, and our music was by Alex Painter. A very big thank you to our contributors this week, Kush Jumbo, Emily McLaughlin, Ben Power, Stuart Pringle, and the wonderful BT Green. If you're on Twitter, you can follow Kush at Kush Jumbo, Ben at Mr. Ben Power, and Stuart at Stuart Pringle. That's Stuart with a W. I'm at Samuel Sedgman, and the NT is at National Theatre. Use the hashtag NTPodcast to let us know what you thought of the show. And don't forget, you can also find us by searching for National Theatre on Facebook, on Tumblr, and Instagram. We'll be back in a fortnight with our next show. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.